Today's reading is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32, verses 1 to 17. This may be found in the Bibles and the Pews on page 794. Jeremiah 32, verses 1 to 17. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, "Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, 'This is what the Lord says: I am going to give the city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it.'" Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against these Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, "The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say." Buy my field at Anathoth, because of the nearest relative. It is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the yard, the courtyard of the guard, and said, "Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself." I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him seventeen shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Maaseiah, in the presence of my cousin, cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed. And all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard, in their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says: Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar, so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord God, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says: Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, "Oh sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you." This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everybody. Just realised that one of the uh, the benefits of uh, preaching is I get to take my mask off for twenty minutes, and my glasses stop steaming up,、uh, which is very helpful indeed. I want to、uh, to look with you this morning at、uh, this passage in Jeremiah chapter thirty two.、Uh, it was one of my sort of minor achievements、uh, during lockdown was actually to read. The entire book of Jeremiah,、uh, which、uh, was only when I got to the end of it, I discovered it was the third longest book in the Bible,、um, so a reasonable、um, achievement.、Um, and as I read through Jeremiah 32, or、uh, through Jeremiah, I came across this、uh, 
quirky story in Jeremiah chapter 32. Um, And I wanted to share some thoughts uh, from this chapter this morning uh, with you. We sang earlier, uh, there was a line in the song that we sang, nothing is too hard for you. Uh, And that's the theme and essence uh, of what I want to share with you this morning. If you look at uh, your Bibles, you'll see in in, uh, chapter 32 here in verse 17, uh, Jeremiah says, As sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I think what's really interesting then is in verse 27, when God reflects Jeremiah's prayer right back at him. And in verse 27, God says back to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? And as we kick off this morning, um, I want to pose a question to you. Um, And I also want to plant an idea in your head. And the the question that I want to to ask you or to pose to you and have you think about uh, as we're looking at this passage this morning um, is what challenge in your life have you put beyond God's reach? So what challenge in your life have you put beyond God's reach? It might be a particular situation. I think David just prayed uh, about the kind of challenges that uh, we face in our lives. It might be financial challenges. It might be health challenges. It might be a challenge of thinking about, does God accept me? What has happened in my life? What have I done in my life that puts me beyond the reach of God or Perhaps it's a a relative that you'd love to see come into a relationship with the Lord and you think, but it seems to be beyond his reach. So I want to pose that question to each one of us this morning. I want you to just take a moment to reflect. What what is the challenge that you have put beyond God's reach? Now, I don't believe for a moment that, well, let me take that back. I think for most of us, it's not true that we explicitly think that. We don't explicitly think God can't do that. But somewhere in our heart of hearts, we might even pray about it to somewhat tick the box, to feel like we've brought it to God. But in the depths of our heart, do we really believe, do we really have faith that God is able to deal with that situation or circumstance? So what, what have you put beyond God's reach is something I want you to think about um, as we're going through this passage. And the second uh, thing I want to do is plant an idea in your head. little phrase I came across in one of the commentaries that I was reading in preparation for this, a guy called Chris Wright, uh, that some of you you may know, uh, wrote the commentary, and he uses this phrase, faith imagination. Faith imagination. Now, we think of the word imagination sometimes as as whimsy. Uh, I like to think of the Uh, my definition of imagination is the ability to conceive of possibilities. And in Hebrews 1, we've got that wonderful definition of faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for. 
But the imagination piece is, what do we hope for? How big is our imagination? Now, we could simply say, how big is your faith? But I like that phrase, faith, imagination. And my challenge to you this morning, and of course the question and this little idea, this phrase, are related. How big is your faith? How big is your faith imagination? So I want you to keep those two things in mind as we walk through this uh, passage. That question and that idea of faith imagination. So the chapter breaks down, broadly speaking, into three sections. Uh, In verses 1 to 15, uh, the writer uh, paints the scene um, and we read about the circumstances that unfold. Then in verses 16 to 26, uh, we, Jeremiah prays. Uh, And I would describe this as Jeremiah trying to make sense of what has just happened. And then in verses 26 to 44, God replies to Jeremiah. And if you like, we get God's sense giving. So one part gives us Jeremiah's sense making, trying to make sense of all of this. And then verses 26 to 44, God replies and engages in what we describe as sense giving, makes sense of it uh, for Jeremiah. So what I want to do briefly is dip into verses 1 to 15, just to paint the scene, set the, describe the circumstances that unfold, so all of us are on the same page. We all have a shared understanding uh, of the situation, the scene that we're looking at. And then to reflect for a moment on what that all means for us. What's the so what? What does it all mean and how can we make sense of it and take something away this morning? So let's just paint the scene, verses 1 to 15. And some of you will be familiar with that uh, movie title, Enemy at the Gate, I think is the, uh, is the, is the title. Um, and here, the enemy is literally at the gate. So if you can imagine, if you watch one of those movies with about Vietnam, about Afghanistan or Iraq, and you're looking, you're looking at a scene of the, you know, the American generals are always standing in some room somewhere with a big screen and there's a drone or a spy satellite out over the territory that they're looking at and, and they zoom in with that satellite. Well, if you can imagine zooming in with the satellite onto this particular scene. And first of all, we pick out the land of Judah and then we zoom in a little bit more and we see poles of smoke rising from the fields uh, and the territory all around. Smoke from where the Babylonian army, as they've advanced on Jerusalem, have burnt the crops and burnt the olive groves uh, and burnt down the vineyards. They've raised the ground as they've moved towards Jerusalem. And as we we zoom in a little bit more, we see uh, evidence of destruction of the towns and villages. Then we zoom in on Jerusalem and we see it surrounded by the armies of Babylon and these siege works. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Lord of the Rings, you know those... uh, battle scenes where you've got these massive siege works uh, advancing on the walls of the city. Imagine that, uh, surrounding Jerusalem, the Babylonian army. And then we, so it's a scene of utter devastation. This is a siege that has been going on for a year and plague has set in, famine has set in, so we're dealing with a scene of utter devastation. As we zoom in a little bit further to the royal palace, And then into the courtyard of the guard, as it's called here. The garrison where 
the soldiers are stationed. And in there, prisoners are held as well. And this is where we find Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet is imprisoned in the center of the royal palace. Now, very simple question. Why, why is Jeremiah a prisoner? Uh, what, is the, uh, what has he done uh, to deserve this? Well, we read about it in verses 3 to 5, if you look with me uh, briefly. Now, Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. So there's kind of a threefold message in Jeremiah's prophecy. Jerusalem will be captured. You, the king, will be handed over and sent into exile. And fighting is futile. Defeat is certain. He's a cheery guy, Jeremiah. Anybody remember the, uh, the wartime character, Lord Ha-Ha? Yeah? In fact, he was Irish. Well, I think there were many Lord Ha-Ha's in reality, but the one that we're familiar with is, is Irish. And he was sent out to say things to, you know, dispirit the troops. So imagine the troops going around here in Jerusalem, encouraging the people and stirring the people to, to battle. Meanwhile, Jeremiah is prophesying, prophesying, defeat is certain. Give up. And the king, you're going to end up in the hands uh, of the king of Babylon. So perhaps maybe even humanly speaking, it's not that surprising that Jeremiah ends up in, uh, in prison. But that's why he is there. So we have a scene of utter devastation and we have Jeremiah the prophet imprisoned for the content of his prophecy. And then we have this quirky event that unfolds. God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, you're going to have a visit from your cousin Hannibal and he's going to propose a property transaction. And so Hannibal almost instantaneously enters the scene. Um, And in a variety of different commentaries, I picked up different words used to describe what now happens. And these are some of the words uh, that I picked up. Ludicrous. Absurd. Preposterous. And then I think my favourite, plain stupid. Those are the words used by commentators to describe what happens next. Because Hannibal comes in and he invites the prophet Jeremiah to purchase his field in Anathos, which is the family hometown. And he invokes the ancient laws of uh, Israel uh, that desired that and intended that property would not end up out of the family or out of the clan, would not be sold. It's not an Irish situation. There's no land speculation or profit allowed here. But rather that if somebody has to sell land, that it's bought by a member of the family or a member of the clan. Um, and so Anathoth comes, or sorry, uh, Hannibal comes 
and requests that Jeremiah buys his land in Anathoth. Now there's just one problem here. Anathoth is three miles outside of the city walls and is already occupied by the Babylonian army. It's already been raised to the ground. The land is worthless. Moreover, if you think about Jeremiah, he's no family to inherit. He's a prisoner. His life is under threat. More than likely he will. He has no prospect of ever seeing this land again or ever farming this land. Uh, it's occupied and Jeremiah himself has already prophesied that Israel is going to be exiled for three generations at least. So what motivation is there for Jeremiah to buy this land? And most likely, Jeremiah would have run Hanamel out of it uh, unless God had already said to him, expect this visit and purchase the land. It makes no sense. Uh, Derek Kidner, another commentator, uh, had a a line that I liked. He said, was there ever a more insensitive prison visitor? He visits his cousin and he doesn't ask him how he is or how he's getting on. He simply proposes that he purchase the land at Anathoth. And of course, uh, Jeremiah continues and proceeds with the purchase of the land. And then all of the legal niceties uh, are also followed to the letter. Uh, with a closed copy, a sealed copy, and an open copy uh, of this transaction prepared and put in a, an earthenware clay jar to be stored uh, for the foreseeable future. And imagine what that scene looks like to the people looking on, the witnesses looking on who are not necessarily privy to God's word to Jeremiah. Looking on, they must think, what a foolish old man. Um, What a naive old man. He's being manipulated here by his cousin and he doesn't get it because this land is worthless and yet Hannibal is leveraging these laws and creating this kind of obligation on Jeremiah to purchase this land uh, when uh, it's completely worthless. But in verses 14 and 15, uh, Jeremiah explains what what this is about. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So what Jeremiah says is, this is a symbol. It's the symbol that says that God will be true to his word. That in generations to come, we will, Israel will return um, and transactions will happen again, land transactions will happen again, and then these documents that we've signed and sealed here today will become relevant once more. So there's the scene. Let me just stop there for a second and make sure I still have you all with me. Maybe I'll ask you a question. No, I won't. Um, So if we got the scene, and again I want you to kind of grasp what the commentators, how the commentators describe this. Let's just really get this now. This is ludicrous. This looks daft, this looks stupid, this makes no sense whatsoever. So what does this all mean for us? How can we make sense of this? Well, 
First of all, Jeremiah tries to make sense of this. So Jeremiah prays to the Lord in verses 16 to 26 um, and are 25. And this is Jeremiah struggling to make sense of this. And it's interesting that even though God has told him to purchase this land, Jeremiah still remains doubting. He still remains questioning. One of the commentators puts it this way. He is obedient but perplexed. He's obedient but he's perplexed. So look at the two ends of the spectrum here. In verse 17... The phrase that we've already read. As sovereign Lord you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And he goes on in the subsequent verses to talk about the great things that God has done. And bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and so on. So in the first part of this prayer he recognises God's sovereignty and God's power. And he says nothing is too hard for you. And then on the other end of the spectrum in verse 25... He says, and though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Do you hear the puzzlement? He says, you've told me that Babylon is going to, uh, Babylon, the Babylonians will win this battle, they'll take over Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be captured and we will exile, we'll be exiled for three generations. And yet you've asked me, to conduct this field transaction. So at either end of Jeremiah's prayer, you get this sense of struggle. This sense of struggle. And of course, it's there for a reason. Because what God is suggesting here is that this great Babylonian empire will at some stage recede. Its power will be broken. It's suggesting that Israel, exiled for three generations, will return. And it's also suggesting that the children of Israel, that the nation of Israel, will return into a right and obedient relationship with God. Now as we read into the chapter here, we know that Israel has fallen away spiritually to the extent that it has now engaged in uh, child sacrifice. So Israel has fallen spiritually a great, great distance. And Jeremiah looks at this and he says... How can it be? In the context of this present chaos and disarray, how do we get to what you've just told me is going to happen? Do you get that? Does that point make sense? So Jeremiah's looking at this and he's saying, you've asked me to do this, and I've done it. I'm obedient. But it's a struggle to understand this. Because when I look at the current circumstances, I don't see how we get there from here. I wonder, does that resonate with you? Chris Wright, again, commentator, captures it beautifully. He says, Israel has a guilty past. It has an inescapable present and an inconceivable future. And Jeremiah's faith imagination, if I can use that word or that phrase, fails to keep up with God. Struggles to understand how this could be. So what does God say in reply? 
Verse 27, I love this. God replies. He always throws a challenge back in this rhetorical question at uh, Jeremiah. And he says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Just as you have said, Jeremiah. Is anything too hard for me? This rhetorical question comes back at um, Jeremiah. I was always taught when studying scripture, I'm sure like many of you in the room, if it's mentioned twice, take note. <laughs> so Jeremiah says, nothing is too hard for you. And then 10 verses later, God comes back and says, you're right, nothing is too hard for me. Mentioned twice. Take note. And then, again, one of the commentators, I can't claim, uh, I can't claim uh, uh, the credit for this, has a lovely threefold way of describing how Jeremiah's faith imagination is challenged here by what God wants to do. He says his faith imagination is challenged because God goes beyond logic. God goes beyond possibility. And God goes beyond horizon. He goes beyond logic because the actions of Israel, the depths to which Israel has fallen spiritually, the actions of Israel in disobedience to God, all of that demands a logic of judgment and destruction. That's the logic. But God wants to do something new and God wants to do something different. Look briefly at verse 36. And note how God replies here to Jeremiah. He says, you, Jeremiah, you are saying about this city, by the sword, famine and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. That's what you say. Then he says, but this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I will gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Do you see that? He says to Jeremiah, you say, but here's what I say. Your logic is not my logic. Your ways are not my ways. And that's how God challenges our faith this morning. To understand that he goes beyond our logic. He says to Jeremiah here, catch up Jeremiah. I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a different thing. Stay with me. And he says the same thing to us. So God goes beyond logic. He goes beyond possibility so again looking at the situation here devastation uh, an inescapable uh, present it's incredibly difficult for Jeremiah and indeed for Israel to think that they could get to how that what God describes here as their return uh, both physically to Jerusalem and also the return to relationship with him um, is, is possible. Is a possibility. How do we get there from here? It's impossible. And so God's, God's work goes beyond possibility. What is it that 
we think is impossible for God. So let me bring you back to that question that I asked you right at the outset. What is it in your life right now that you feel is beyond God? That you feel is something that in reality God can't deal with? Is your faith imagination big enough? And then beyond the horizon, verses 39 to 41. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all, that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So what God does here is he points to the return to Jerusalem, but he does it in language that points beyond that. He points to an, to an eternal future. He points to the new covenant. He points to our eternal destination. And so he challenges Jeremiah's faith imagination to go beyond logic, to go beyond possibility, and to go beyond the horizon, to think in an eternal context as well as a temporal one. So, with one eye on the clock, what's the application? Very briefly, what does that mean for us today? Two things are three things I want to point to very quickly. One is Jeremiah's obedience when asked by God to uh, to conduct the property transaction, um, and he exercises faith in practical obedience. So here, Jeremiah is a great example of practical obedience. And you know, that, that's where our faith works out in practice around us today. It's kind of where the rubber hits the road. Where our spiritual lives meet our temporal lives. I was trying to think of an example of this and I bumped into one when I came in this morning. It's gift day. I think our finances are a great example of practical obedience. Faith exercised in practical obedience. Because giving our money away, in human terms, doesn't make sense. Ludicrous. But in faith terms, it makes absolute sense. It's practical obedience. I wonder is God asking you, or has he been speaking into your heart and mind quietly about something he wants you to do? Maybe it's a job move. Maybe it's stepping out in faith to take on something you would not normally otherwise take or do. Maybe it's to pray for a member of your family that you think is beyond redemption. I know what it is. But what is the act of practical obedience that God is challenging you to do today? Secondly, I'm really interested here that when Jeremiah is perplexed, He goes to God in prayer. It pushes him towards God, not away from God. So Jeremiah was obedient but perplexed. And when he's perplexed, he brings it to God in prayer. I wonder, do you do that? I wonder when the situations are difficult and challenging, when situations don't make sense, when it's hard to see the pathway forward, do you wrestle with God in prayer? 
Because that's what Jeremiah does here. Kind of goes as I say from nothing is too hard from you for you all the way through to really? Is this what you're asking me to do? Wonderfully kind of human. So I'm going to encourage you this morning if something is perplexing you, something is not clear for you, I want you to bring it to God in prayer and I want you to wrestle with it with God in prayer. And then the third thing is what we've been chatting about this morning. How big is your faith imagination? I want you to remember that his ways don't follow our ways. His logic is not our logic. What he can and will do is beyond our sense of what is possible. And the work that he does will go beyond this current reality, beyond this horizon into eternity. So remember this morning God's word. Nothing, Jeremiah's prayer, nothing is too hard for you. God's reply, you're right, nothing is too hard for me. I hope this morning that you will be strengthened in your faith by that thought. I hope this morning as you go out the door, I hope you'll be encouraged to be more bold in the steps of faith that you take. I hope that you will grow your faith imagination. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that our faith at times is weak, it's fragile but thank you Lord that that's okay and we just bring that fragility before you this morning and ask you Lord to strengthen our faith ask you Lord to help us understand that what is possible is not based on who we are or what we are or how hard we pray or anything of that type. It's all based on who you are. It's based on your sovereignty. It's based on your grace. It's based on your mercy. And Father, we pray that we will be bold in terms of our faith imagination. That Father, we will understand that nothing is too hard for you. Father, I pray that we go out of here this morning strengthened by that thought, excited by that thought, emboldened by that thought. And may this week, with that thought in our head, may we serve you and glorify you as we should. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.